Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about rationalization and disposals. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an object conservative based in Carmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an object conservative based in Greater Manchester. Hey guys. Hello. Oh, big topic today. We've got a special co-host <gasps> as well. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'd love to. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Emma, Emma Duggan, Conservation Collections Care Manager over at the Welcome Collection in London. Welcome back. If you are a regular listener, you'll remember Emma from the Extreme Storage episode. Mm. Thanks for coming back. Pleasure. <laughs> it's nice to have you back. Right. So today, oh, I don't know how to approach this. Like, It's not like it's the reverse of conservation because I don't think it is, but it's a part of collections care that we don't talk very much about. And mm. that's not getting rid of things because that sounds really harsh, but more looking at what we've got in our collections and seeing if some things might need new homes. It's how I sort of choose <laughs> to think about it. I'll term it as collections management. Oh, yes, exactly. We can acquire items and we can also remove them if necessary <laughs> and i feel like the really scary word that's thrown about a lot is disposal and disposal just sounds like bomb disposal like something's being you know securely blown up in a car park somewhere and like what that does happen <laughs> that's that's not usually what it is right that's that's not normally that's not normally part of the protocol <laughs> this is a nice thing to talk about because yeah it is sort of um it is sort of one of those things that I feel like, especially in collections care, we're all a little bit like, no, we keep things forever. Don't. What are you doing? And it's like, yeah, but <laughs> we should talk about this. Okay. This is a natural part of life. <laughs> object lifespans. Yeah. 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 Not just regular life, but also object lifespans. Sometimes we have joked on the show that, you know, sometimes we have to like say that this is the end, end of line <laughs> for this object. Like we cannot do anything more, but it, that's not always the case. That's not the only reason something might leave a collection, for example. And I just thought we would have a bit of fun talking about this. But first, I would like to ask if any of us have done any work with rationalization and disposals and stuff like that. Has anyone done that? I can kick off. Um, when I was at Blythe House at Science Museum, we were doing a storage compression project, which is very exciting. But the, we found absolutely loads and loads of items that had just been squirreled away and had never really been documented oh. or acquired, accessioned formally into the collection. Yeah. One, well, one collection of these things was a, it was an entire bathroom set. <laughs> oh <laughs> my God. It was definitely from the seventies. You know, it was the toilet, it was the sink. And yeah, so one of the things following due diligence, like a proper good conservative, <laughs> asking lots of questions. Mm. <laughs> Why? Oh, what, my God. Many, many hours, you know, asking the right people about this. It turned out to just be our director's bathroom service that was supposed what? to be plumbed in. Because <laughs> um, the director used to have a flat in the science museum. Oh, my God. They just never fitted it. So it went to Blythe House and it almost became part of the collection. Oh, what? <laughs> I laugh because that's an extreme example and I'm really enjoying the fact that it was a whole bathroom. That's great. But this happens a lot, actually, when it's just like something has been left near some collection and then everyone's <laughs> like, that's probably part of the collection. And then it's just this unnumbered detritus that's just <laughs> constantly following you around if you move store or in the store or just in general being shifted about. It's amazing how 
how much this genuinely happens. Although the bathroom one is definitely the best one I think I've ever heard. <laughs> if any of our listeners can top that, I would love That's that. That's particularly good. Was it in packaging? I have questions. Yeah, it was in its packaging. And it's been there for decades. <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah, but so yeah. many of the, the colleagues I were involved in that conversation. <laughs> oh my God. I swear, people think museums are, are way more on top of things than they are. Which, I mean, bless you. Thank you for having that confidence in all of us. But also... I, like there's a lot of weird stuff going on in a previous museum uh, and i'm not even going to say where or what or um there was in the archives this bag of somebody's old clothes oh yeah and no, no, that's that's almost standard no one knows why yeah no one knew whether they could throw it out they didn't think it was part of the collection but they were like why is this here but we're not sure no but that's the thing right if you're not sure then obviously you can't just you know you, you can't yeah. just get rid of it so there's quite a lot of grey areas, as it turns out, in museums, because I remember having this whole conversation similarly about some, like, overalls mm. and um, some colourful lab coats and stuff that we found. And ultimately, there'd been, like, a workshop somewhere on the premises at some point. So most likely, these would have belonged to people who worked at the council at the time, like, you know, many, many, many years years ago. But we couldn't quite tell. You know, like, what if it... What if this is meant to be part of the collection and these come from somewhere in particular, but they just don't have a logo on them? What is up with this? This is the level of conversation that you end up having an awful lot in museum offices everywhere. It's funny to a degree and also very annoying because it's just like, could someone just please have put a post-it on this? I mean, probably not a post-it. Yeah, it'll just fall off and leave sticky residue everyone. But you know, could someone have done something here where we just left ourselves some sort of note that would have been grand chloe have you done any like sort of disposal rationalization type stuff i have a sort of i mean a lot of it was with emma is my manager (laughs) 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 um uh, the science museum and can can i can i just say that science museum is very well managed (laughs) which is pulling out quite a lot of of examples from there right now well managed there isn't a better museum management All right, like just to put a massive asterisk on this entire episode, we're not throwing shade at anyone. And in fact, we have a really Absolutely lovely interview not. later where people actually sort of address the sort of problem that's in every single museum, right? With some extremely rare exceptions of maybe a museum set up yesterday, I don't mm. know. Like as soon as any time passes, this sort of thing happens, exactly. right? Yeah. And this is natural. We should not be ashamed. We should all talk about it and we should own up to it. Agreed. Yeah. Massive asterisks. Everything is fine. (laughs) Don't worry. We're not throwing shade. Yeah. So I think it was because it was Science Museum, a lot of it was hazards based um, because Mm, obviously, you know, as you go through stores, you're looking at everything and doing hazard assessments and everything like that. So there were some instances of Okay, well, that's probably not. Should we check if that's it's not that safe? Okay, let's dispose of that. But I wasn't really on the side that made the decisions about what to do with it next. And of course, if it's hazardous, Mm. you can't offer it to anyone else. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's interesting that we're already sort of discussing sort of why things might be disposed, which, you know, is another point, like, because ultimately a lot of people think that museums should keep everything forever. And that's why we've done such a great job at marketing ourselves as places that keep things forever, that people are almost offended if that's not the case. We have also tried quite hard to keep everything forever, haven't we? Like this, museums have been a thing for a long time and we're sort of only just talking about throwing stuff away. 
And yeah. we're often really only talking about throwing stuff away when it's really obviously not important. <laughs> yes. So, I was, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that we used to, well, it's hard to say what's not important, right? Is it- I know. I use that phrase really flippantly, but it's important that we talk about these things. So some of the reasons that we might get rid of something for example we've already talked about things being hazardous mm-hmm. so something that's an obvious problem like something that's going to go up in flames something that's going <laughs> to give everyone lung cancer if they look at it too long <laughs> you know obviously those things are not things that we can reasonably keep and i think that's entirely fine i don't think anyone quibbles about that i think people are like okay we're on board with something being got rid of if it's like really bad mm-hmm. So that's pretty natural. And then the path then tends to be destruction. Like it needs to be safely disposed of out of the museum and then probably destroyed forever. But it it gets a bit hazier when it's, you know, something that's not dangerous. But as you say, we've only just sort of started talking about this since, you know, yeah. And there, there are some examples of how this has gone very badly for some people. But, you know, mostly I feel like there are more success stories than bad stories. Thinking in particular of some, some museum who uh, tried selling off some things just because they fancied some money. That's not a good idea. <laughs> and also not how we do things. Um, and illegal, I believe. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Quite. Um, also against every code of ethics, etc., etc., etc. Other reasons that people might get rid of things is that it might not fit the collection policy anymore. And that's, you know, a thing that should be constantly reviewed in many ways. Some museums have been around for so long and maybe didn't really have a policy to begin mm-hmm. with, just sort of collected whatever they fancied, anything that was nice, any trinket that was close to them. And the, it isn't that those aren't nice things, but it might be that it doesn't really fit with what the museum is trying to do now, for example, or the mission statement or whatever it might be. And that's interesting as well, because if collections and modern collecting is guided by what is offered, particularly, then it's the outside impression of what the museum is about and potential communication of that that will guide what is offered. Yeah, and I mean, there's also the thing of ultimately a museum might try to reinvent itself. Like we used to be the local history museum and now we actually want to be specifically the town's natural history museum instead of something, in which case, you know, it might be like, we're getting rid of anything that isn't natural history related, for example, in which case that's probably quite a lot of stuff. It might be as part of a rebranding or some looking at what you're actually collecting. It could also simply be things like you don't have the storage facility anymore. You're going to have to downsize your collection somehow. This can be budget related, as we all know. Uh, yeah, there, there are n- numerous reasons why we might need to look at what we actually have in our collections. And that might sound like a bad thing, but it isn't always, if you see what I mean. Definitely. And I think also um, looking at what you've already got within the collection, but also looking at what you're going to acquire. So if you've got a good, robust collecting mm. collection development policy, then um, so, so say as an example at Welcome Collection, we are collecting quite a lot of ephemeral pieces at the minute. We've not gone out to, to search for them, but the artists we're working with at the minute are are creating works that are full of leaves, <laughs> leaves and um, bits of kind of um, organic material that will deteriorate oh, in wow. time. And they're absolutely beautiful. And that's kind of one of our jobs really is just to highlight the impact that, that will be and potentially mm. put, you know, a life on it and then start that conversation as what, what what happens to it when it comes to its natural end. You know, we'll preserve it as much as we can. But yeah. realistically, it's not going to have that long. We're doing the same thing with plastics. There's so many, so much of 
political expression and campaign is made from well plastic materials and stuff that just won't keep um so you know commercially printed plastic banners and stuff for example and so i think people started getting tired of me in acquisitions meetings saying i know it's really good but it's going to be unusably yellow in 10 years <laughs> um <No. laughs> repeating that over and over again that we just decided to build into the collecting policy and the dis- sort of rationalization and disposals policy as well that we will have to assess the plastic objects that we decide on and we can only basically collect them if we know that we're going to be able to use them before we then have to chuck them out <laughs> yeah <laughs> So funding and downsizing collecting spaces puts me on edge because... It does me as well. That That's just... I mean, it's not just, obviously, we have to do what we can do. But if, you know, a building is taken away from you because you can't pay for it, hmm. then instead of saying, I'm sorry, but we need this space, you say, you're saying, okay, we'll, we'll just chuck stuff out. I mean, no... <laughs> it isn't that i realize that but it isn't that i mean i'm sure that has happened yeah but that isn't really the point i'm trying to make no. sometimes it it will be a case of right so we just need to use the space better for example uh-huh, yeah. like we have a smaller yeah. like we have a smaller store but it's a higher ceiling or something mm-hmm. like okay so we're gonna have to um stack things on shelves and that might be that we can't keep the oversized trucks yeah. so we weren't really <laughs> using them anymore you know like it's it's more looking critically at your collections mm-hmm. and yes that is sometimes uncomfortable but i think it is necessary and not just from a hey we need to fit everything into this room Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of uh, point of view and yes it 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 is meant to be uncomfortable when i say that i do i do bring that particular example up because i know that that's something that happens obviously we all try to make the cases for our collections to remain as whole and complete as possible but sometimes it might be that it's it spurs the sort of long overdue sort of rationalization or like the sort of i guess it's like an audit sort of like what do we have do we know enough about them because another reason that people might get rid of things is things like they have duplicate items mm-hmm. for example it's like how many mangles do you really need <laughs> um do they well it's more like if they all tell a different story that's different because obviously it's about the significance and the value and that's not financial value that's you know cultural value etc you know, it's obvious that there's there's some stuff like that, you know, we, we need to take that stuff into consideration, but it might just be that you don't need five mangles. You might need the two that you've got good provenance and good stories for that will somehow support people know more about mangles. I don't know. Uh, mangles was a terrible story. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> well, no, because they're, they're awkward and they're heavy and, you know, unless yeah. you're doing a, you know, timeline of mangles. Yeah, and then I I think that's probably quite niche. Like I don't know <laughs> that, that many museums would, would want to do that. Um, and there might be that those mangles exist in other collections around you anyway, so you could possibly borrow one if you needed one for an exhibition. Although that's hard to hard to say, of course. How many museums, archives, libraries realistically know what they have fully? Exactly. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah. Exactly. There's that legacy backlog everywhere in the land. You know, and yeah. it's good to be open about it, but. I guess that stops people from wanting to decide on disposal is because, you know, maybe this is the best thing we have. 
And also because it, it then makes it difficult to know what other places have as well because they don't know or they don't advertise it or there's no way of checking. Like, yes, you can email the collections officer one county over and say, do you happen to have a mango from <laughs> this particular I don't know, manufacturer. Um, and they might be able to answer or they might not um, because they might also not know what's in their collection. Uh, this is all sounding terribly shady now, doesn't it? But it's just the reality of, of how it reality. is sometimes. Yeah. And we're terrible at sort of talking about it because we sort of want people to think that we have our shit together. And actually museums <laughs> have just done their very best with very little time or people for a very long time. Yeah. Absolutely. But which is why this is sort of cathartic, quite nice to look through what you have and get to know your collection a bit better and then sort of making some decisions on, on what you actually want or need or what represents the community that you might be serving. Because, you know, especially if you're a local museum, you might find that you actually represent the three rich families in the area of which you know, there's a handful of descendants, but actually you don't represent the rest of your local community at all. And then you sort of got to think about, well, do we want to change that? And how do we go about changing that? Do we have the space to change that? Do we have the resources to change that? It's sort of like future-proofing your museum in a way, or like your collection. Kind of the blocker for, for looking at collections and understanding fully often is, you know, time and money, essentially, and certainly arguing mm-hmm. for it when it's kind of not that sexy, you know, it's sexy to us, but it's yeah. not really going to bring more people through the door. It will do eventually because you'll have greater engagement with the material you've got. But, you know, it's, it might be a bit of a hard sell. No, it definitely is. And that's that's one of the many problems, really. It makes me think of an interview that we're going to listen to later, which was sort of talking a little bit about how things were funded and how other people have funded these sorts of projects. You write that it isn't particularly sexy to most people who give out money. And that is a problem. And of course, that's sort of why we're in this mess. Well, mess. We have lovely things, but we don't know enough about them. That's sort of a nice <laughs> mess in some ways. We don't know what they are or <laughs> where they are <laughs> but or how many other things are around them. <laughs> I mean, obviously, this genuinely poses problems for conservatives as well, because if we don't have any information about objects, what what is it that we're conserving? Okay, the material thing in front of us, but which paint layer is important? Yeah, exactly. It becomes really hard to actually look after the things that are in the collection as well. And this is sort of an additional problem that I feel like people don't really talk enough about, because I think often we're like, well, we should understand what we're conserving. If you can't, if there isn't the information, then there isn't the information. Yeah then what do you do? There's definitely a a conservation case in here for knowing more about your collections and and possibly then trimming it down to the things that you do know things about. Because that's another thing that people look at in these um, rationalization projects is the sort of uncontextualized or unprovenanced Mm. items, not not just the bathroom uh, sink (laughs) and the the surprise lab coat, but, you know, also things like Right. Well, we have zero idea where this is actually from. We have a name for who donated it, but we have no context. There, there are no dates. Uh, I, you know, this is probably a farm tool from the thirties, and that's all you've got. <laughs> no, exactly. And and then it, you know, you got to think about how valuable that might be, mm. and not again, not in terms of the value of the metal or the item that you're holding, but more in terms of what information can we glean from this, and like what. What, what would we use this for as well? 
I guess that's the thing, like underused items is is also a little bit problematic because you know those all those headlines every now and then that's like, oh, only 1% of what museums have is on show at any one time. And I hate those like, headlines. They make me upset. I know. <laughs> I know. On so many levels. And it's not so many. It's not that we should aim to have 100% of the things on show at any one time. Let's not be too crazy <laughs> here. But it's... <sighs> But it does sort of highlight an interesting thing of maybe we don't have enough information about the 99% that, that people think that we keep hidden. <laughs> well, yeah, how much of this, how many individual objects in collections would go on display and the object label and interpretation would be, this is a farm implement from the 30s. And that's it. Oh, yeah. And how would you yeah. how would you fit that into an exhibition or mass display? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. But I don't know how much of that museums are doing now. If you see what I mean, like it's uh, yeah, that's sort of a very old way of doing museums. It's just let's just put everything heaped in a case and hope for the best. Like that's sort of not what we do now. I have a question about this though. Go on. So my and I I absolutely approve of rationalization projects and wish that we could do more of them, though I'd like to say what we do as well as a museum. Of course. But my reservations are how much of the decisions that we make will be based on the fashion of the time. Mm-hmm. There's also that. What, what is it that and I, I'm, I'm, you know, not meaning to sound like, you know, various newspaper columnists that say like oh (laughs) we shouldn't be guided by the woke museum blah 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 we should be a standard you know institutional honor etc i'm not saying that but what i am saying is we know very well that museums have changed the way that we display things and the way that we communicate things very much over the last even 10 years 20 years how much of those decisions are made based on something that's going to change that's a fair enough worry I think that's another reason why these decisions shouldn't be made in isolation. Like it's no one is, well, I sure hope no one is um, putting like one curator in a room saying, okay, let us know which 10 of these (laughs) you would like to keep. That's not what's happening. I mean, that's a television program right there. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. This is the new Antiques Roadshow. Um, But that's not the aim of the game, right? So we're not trying to do that. And I think it's, it's important that when we take these decisions that we take them carefully is the wrong word more thoughtfully maybe collectively thoughtfully, yeah, yeah. like i feel like there needs to be more people in around the table than just the curator or whoever we think is in charge this week um <laughs> uh, that's like it's about figuring out what criteria yeah, you have you that's an interesting one that is i would say an institutional and possibly sometimes community decision to figure out and should involve ideally everyone like everyone in the professional roles at the museum and also ideally voices from the community that you serve as well it depends on what type of museum you are of course if you can get as much input as possible then you can decide what your criteria are and then you can start looking at making the decisions. And even then, it should probably go to various sorts of committees and like go through several stages of consultation, which I think is only fair. And I know that people are immediately like, oh, yawn, boring, red tape. But honestly, we do need to be careful about it. No one's proposing a jumble sale outside <laughs> the museum. You know, like that's not what, what we're trying to do. <laughs> so shall we at this point say how does one dispose of objects dispose and again using the word dispose mm-hmm. as in how does one move objects out of one's collection in an ethical manner 
Well, first of all, there are several types of guidance on mm-hmm. this. So there's the Museums Association's um, Disposal Toolkit, for example, that talks you through all the different things that you have to think about and ways to approach them. Um, the Collections Trust also has like various sorts of resources that you can look at, including examples of what other museums are doing, for example, the ethical considerations and all that stuff. There are flow charts. Basically, there's a ton of stuff out there to sort of help talk people through this. At the moment, it is sort of a little bit convoluted, to be honest. And I know that that puts a lot of people off. And I know that at the Museums Association conference that I was at recently, there was a panel about disposing of objects that sort of suggested that they might look at making it a little bit more streamlined because there's quite a lot of different hoops to go through. But that's not to say make it super easy, like boom, boom, bash, just throw it out. That's definitely not what it's going to be. But more to um, make it maybe a bit more user-friendly. Yeah, I think there's some work to be done there. But there's a lot of guidance, uh, particularly for UK museums. I have no idea how this works in other parts of the world. So do please write in and tell me because I would love to know. But um, I do know there are really good toolkits. Uh, and obviously for the Museums Association ones, that's part of being accredited and such. So, um, you know, you need to take that stuff seriously. I think it's about bolstering confidence as well, because, you know, there's like you say, there's so yeah. many toolkits, workflows, things like that. But if you're individually doing it in every single museum, and not talking to others about it, then you're going to find your path mm. on you. And, you know, if you're unconfident about something, then you're just you're possibly just going to constantly go around in that wheel of yes or no, go to the next stage, <laughs> which is what that toolkit does a bit. So mm. I think, yeah, I yeah. think talking more openly, just being a bit more transparent and maybe these the easier ways of doing things or, yeah, that that would help a lot because I think it's quite worrisome i think for people to you know it's it's a big process isn't it to go through and you don't want to make the wrong decision at the end of the day yeah time consuming as well yeah it's definitely one of those scary things that's time consuming and thus because it's time consuming just also makes it expensive essentially if you look at it Mm -hmm. you know sort Mm -hmm. of crudely and that's not a hugely appealing task to anyone that is it (laughs) i just sort of think that this needs to be a more natural maybe point to to looking after your stuff but like that's definitely a barrier to people doing this. So Emma, I would like to ask you what what experience of the role of conservation have you seen in this before? Um, so definitely identifying objects, I'd say, and then mm-hmm. um, obviously doing kind of the condition checks and the documentation side from that. Mm-hmm. So say if you are, uh, we used to go through. It wasn't really a fast track, but a considered fast track for collections hazards that you know you you gave a full you know condition report essentially saying why mm-hmm. why it's so deteriorated that's that's kind of you know why why it's making it a candidate for disposal essentially so yes yeah, that is that condition side of things generally and are things often flagged by conservation in um, and I'm asking both of you at this point are things often flagged by conservation to start the conversation or I suppose it depends on the project, doesn't it? If it's a, it, it'll be flagged by the project if it's a disposal of disposal of rationalisation project. But if you're, you know, going through a store and you see a jar labelled gunpowder, it's going to be very much led by the conservator <laughs> or the, whoever found it in that situation. 
a little bit of both in my experience. Yeah. So I've done sort of both, like the sort of not ad hoc because that's not right, but you know, like both sort of. Oh, here's something we'd like to use for an exhibition. Here, here's the vague location for it. Could you go and take a look? And you open the box, and it's just like a pile of something <laughs> that used to be something. It's just like, well, no one looked at this for a while. <laughs> um, you don't have this object anymore dispose so it can be that sort of level mm. of thing in which case i feel like i'm very much the instigating power in this <laughs> it can also be part of projects as as you said so i've worked on some very sort of salvage type mm. projects where it's been you know in the aftermath of uh, some sort of traumatic event whether that's a fire or a flood or something and it's a case of this can be salvaged and this can't for example and at that point it's like no amount of conservation can save this but it's not because it's dangerous or because it's in bits it's just it's differently unsalvageable if you say what i mean in which case it's more instigated about the project and people anticipate that there will be disposals if you see what i mean but very much in the kind of extreme disposal because for, to me extreme disposal is when things have to go in the bin as opposed to things have to be rehomed there are different levels of disposal <laughs> and go in the bin slash be destroyed is the really really horrible one that's end of life as where i'm much more keen on the sort of other type of objects leaving the collection where it's like let's find a different home for this because it's a good thing it's just not good for us, which I'm much more happy with. Usually the guidance says that if something has to be given away, essentially, or like if something is no longer to be part of your collection, you should try to find it a new home, if at all possible. And that should ideally be in the public sector, if you see what I mean. Like it should mm -hmm, go yeah. to a, ideally an accredited museum and after that sort of maybe a non-accredited museum or like a historical society or some other you know, group essentially. And, and then only in sort of in extreme circumstances should things be sold and possibly go to private collections. I, I find that an interesting hierarchy and I totally see why it exists, but sometimes I feel like things risk ending up in the bin because people have reached the other stages of having asked people and then like, well, I would sort of rather it didn't go to a private collector. So I guess it goes on the curb, which I'm not really okay with. Mm. Right? I, I just feel like sometimes we guard things so hard from being someone's personal enjoyment that I'm sort of not on board with it. <laughs> but it should definitely stay in the public realm if at all possible. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you think we police the big institutions like the Science Museum and potentially welcome more than we police the smaller museums and where what could that lead to in terms of both ease of throwing stuff away and ethics i suppose i'll just put that under the umbrella of ethics oh i don't know that we police one more than the other i don't know that that's does the public eye though so is the is the science museum how do you how have you found um disposals in large institutions emma have you found that there's a lot of like pressure from members of the public and stakeholders and trustees and stuff to well i suppose pressure in general watchful eyes people going do you really want to throw that away Are you sure i like it I would say for institutions that go through accreditation, they have to mm -hmm. follow those guidelines and those codes of ethics, essentially. And that's for all kind of collection management as well as dispersal. I'm not sure really, certainly for talking from Welcome Collection, that we do an awful lot of it, if I'm absolutely honest. Yeah. I think we're definitely 
going through that, understanding what we have in the collection first. Mm-hmm. And then the collection review will be the, almost like the next stage. So, yeah, I'm not sure in terms of the public public eyes. I, I definitely remember when we had, I don't know if you remember the Medicine Now Gallery. Uh, yeah. We had a large wax uh, sculpture called, it was by John Isaacs, um, I Can't Help the Way I Feel. And it was essentially kind of like very obese, non-gendered figure essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and you either loved or hate it. It was Marmite um, mm-hmm. as, as yeah. a collection item. But when we removed it, you know, our collections development team were were considering whether we acquire it because it was, it was an artwork, which we don't generally have sculptures, you know, within our collection, whether we actually acquire it because it was part of our history. You know, it was in that Medicine Now gallery for 10 years mm. or whether we, you know, give it away or disperse of it. We had an awful lot of um, people coming out saying it's awful. You should not have that in your collection. Oh, really? <laughs> really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, because we do engage, obviously, with different activists mm-hmm. and they were saying, yeah, you shouldn't have it. So it was interesting to, to see the different viewpoints of it. We did take it in and we have acquired it because it is interesting that it tells those stories, you know, it tells those yeah. stories. And that's kind of a good talking point, really. I mean, it is interesting because sometimes if you ask for public opinion, A, it might surprise you, and B, you may still go against what the public opinion says for various reasons. And here we sort of get into the thorny territory of whose voices count when you're either acquiring things or disposing of things, really. How many different opinions do we take on board and how do we make decisions based on that? And that's one of the sort of fascinating conundrums of collections management. And also another interesting side of it is potentially, you know, restitution, repatriation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, there's going to be so much more of it um, in the future, you know, and, and that is a, an act of removing, you know, we're researching very hard and engaging with communities, but then removing these items from your collection, which is essentially a dispersal. It sort of has its own life, that mm. one. And we, we've done an episode on things returning. We've had our only ever abuse from that episode release, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is what it is. It stirs up emotions. Mm-hmm. And so does the sort of topic of more widely of uh, of disposal, for example, which is interesting. Uh, certainly hope we don't get any particular hate mail from this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> feel free to write in with your thoughts, but be polite about them. Um <laughs> It's interesting that most people that I've talked to who have done rationalization projects have been really fearful of people's reactions. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Most of the time, like really frightened that the public are going to like practically storm the building or be really angry or lose all trust and just in general, not taking well to the idea. But actually, most people I've talked to have actually had a lovely experience because they've been really thoughtful about it. They've tried to communicate really well why they're doing this, what's being affected, that it's not like we're selling off half the collection or something weird like that. And actually, they've had really nice experiences and people have been surprisingly understanding. And that, I think, is the thing that we need to focus more on, that actually, no, people aren't always angry about us making these decisions, especially if they get to be involved in those decisions. Would this be a good time to listen to your interview? Oh, yes, I think that's an excellent idea. Let's listen to that now. Today we're talking about rationalisation, disposal, all of those big sort of topics. And I'm here with two people who have kindly joined me in my virtual studio today for an interview. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? 
My name is Ian Channel, and I am the collections officer at Epping Forest District Museum, which is based in Waltham Abbey. And I care and manage our fantastic collection. Hi, I'm Abigail Johnson. I have a very silly long job title. I'm a commercial media and marketing officer at Epping Forest District Council. So part of my job involves promoting and communicating what Epping Forest District Museum does. That's a great and very important job and also must result in a slightly longer than average business card. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long email signature. (laughs) Oh, I bet. Um, Anyway, welcome both of you. It's really nice to have you here. So we sort of started chatting via email because you guys were sort of interested in talking about what you guys were doing in terms of rationalization. And I would like you both to tell us a bit a bit more about what you guys are doing. Yeah, of course. Um, so the museum has a fantastic collection. So displayed over six themed galleries. So we have some amazing objects in the collection. Despite the fact that we have fantastic collections, there's a lot of objects we don't actually know a huge amount about. And some objects just aren't relevant or suitable to the museum and its audience. So like many museums, our collections have begun to exceed the space available for storage. So this has led us to sort of pursue this rationalization project. As you can imagine, it's led to specific concerns for collections care and obtaining kind of appropriate environmental conditions. So some objects are stored really unsuitable environments and we don't necessarily know their condition or their material needs. Other concerns as well is we have collections documentation and some of it isn't particularly up to scratch, unfortunately, and it's difficult to know what we have and where it's located. And with packed stores, it's difficult to safely access those stores. So we so we don't regularly use some of these objects in our external stores for display or exhibition purposes or for research. So that's sort of the impetus of why we're doing the project. Yeah. I think we're we're also conscious that I think limited space means that our capacity for future collecting is minimal. And we're conscious that that could lead to sort of a historical imbalance in sort of the historic periods represented, as well as the different Mm. members of the community represented. And I think we're aware that the collection needs to reflect our community. And at the moment, unfortunately, it it doesn't. We also want to leave sort of a well-managed collection for sort of future generations, I suppose. That's a whole point. Oh, like a a little present. I like that. Like a little present. Exactly. (laughs) And we we don't want it to be a burden. So that's sort of why we're we're doing this rationalization. Oh, God. I, th- I mean, as a current museum professional, I feel like I would have appreciated if previous museum professionals had had perhaps more forethought in terms of like, oh, yeah, should I really do all of my museum documentation on loose bits of paper that then get binned <laughs> when I leave? <laughs> it's a mood. I have to say that all of the things that you're saying are things that are so common yeah. in the museum sector as well. And I, I think that's the thing. We need to normalize talking about these things because mm-hmm. it's like, I don't think I've ever come across a museum that knows exactly where absolutely everything is or Mm. has perfect conditions for everything like even if you look at the big league guys they're not gonna have that and you know there are regular headlines of like oh only one percent or five percent of this museum's collection is on display or ever used they can be slightly sinister headlines but i think it's a really good point about how we aren't perhaps using all the things that we have who we keeping them for what is it that used to be collected those are all important things 
And I guess in many ways it's a sustainability thing as well. Not just for we only have so many stores or so much money. It's even a going into the future. How much can we actually afford to look after? Not even with money or time. Just how much can we actually spend on keeping these things? And these are all the really interesting things that I hope people listening to this podcast thing goes away and thinks about because i think they are really vital things to be talking about and i bet you guys have also found that this stimulates debate perhaps even within the museum <laughs> yes it definitely does but i, th- I think that so we're, we're guided by the museum association's code of ethics and the disposal mm. toolkit so parts of what we sort of embedded in the project is sort of the responsibility for deciding what to retain and what to dispose of doesn't fall on one individual. So we've tried to make it as democratic as possible. So when we have sort of decided what we want to dispose of, the objects go to a steering group. Mm. So I, I imagine it varies between institutions who's actually in the steering group. Yeah. But we have a local counselor involved in the steering group as well as all different departments within the museum, you know, curatorial, learning, exhibitions. Abigail as well is in it from a PR and marketing point of view, which is fantastic. All these individuals basically kind of, they make the decision based off the data that's presented to them. So we've tried to make it as sort of democratic as possible. So everyone sort of gets to share their opinion. Yeah. yeah. It's not just a responsibility thing. It's also, you know, you need many voices in the room to make these decisions. That's Definitely sort of one of the downfalls of maybe how we got some of the things that we all have in our museum collections is that it it was often guided by one voice Mm. at one time and it tended to be a white privileged man oh yes (laughs) (laughs) and that has resulted in some imbalances in terms of what's been collected and you know usually it was very guided in the past by niche interests of curators and things like that as well some of it has of course resulted in fantastic collections and sometimes you just find that someone went nuts for corduroy trousers for a little bit and you just find that you have a hundred pairs of the same corduroy trousers because they really like them genuine example people i'm not gonna name names but there are some strange binges in the past curatorship of the world guys So it's good to have these conversations and making it more of an open process. And Abigail, how have you found being involved in this? Has it been interesting to you as a sort of a non-super museum-y person initially? Yeah, it's been a fantastic, really interesting project to be involved in. And I think we've actually benefited from being part of that wider organisation that's not full of museum experts. So myself... And the councillor that are on the steering group, we're not museum experts, not as far as I'm aware. I'm, I don't know about councillor's background, but we can be the lay, the lay person on the call, really. And we can ask questions about jargon and things like that, where sometimes we take for granted in our smaller conversations, whether it's in the museum or whether you're chatting to a friend who knows your work very well. Um, so it's really helpful to us to have that, that filter there, because obviously whenever I'm talking to the group about the stories that we are that we are going to share and we're going to come across and how we're going to be talking about those, we're never going to be talking about those in the same way the first time as we do as we do the last time. We're going to break it down and mm-hmm. ask those questions. Because when we talk about it being a discussion of disposal, actually that's such a small part of it, even though that's the headline the headline word sometimes. It's really um not the outcome for many, many objects. And we know that steering group is the first of many, many hoops um, and many steps. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really 
good point about these conversations is that I think people may envisage that disposal from a museum collection means that something goes in the bin. And actually, that's incredibly rare. <laughs> Sometimes conservators have to do the really horrible thing of calling end of life for something where yeah. it's so far gone that it's a pile of goo or it's just rust flakes and it no one and you don't want it to be dangerous to someone no exactly and then the disposal becomes very permanent but normally these sorts of collections reviews result in things going on to have a second life or third life and they go on to find a new home and that's sort of the important bit i think like it's actually just giving an object another chance somewhere else as a keen reuser and like circular economy type person i love that ian's got a, a couple of examples i think obviously we've still got a long way to go with regards to processing everything but we've definitely handed on a, a couple of bits and bobs haven't we ian definitely i mean the main goal, I think, is to retain these objects in the public domain. You know, unfortunately, in in some circumstances, that won't be possible, so hazardous Mm. objects. But um, we're following the Museum Association Disposal Toolkit that basically has sort of a gradient of things to follow. So we're returning loan objects to institutions or individuals, if if Mm. we can. We then offer the objects to accredited museums, and that's usually through the Museum Association's Find an Object site. So we, we leave the object up there for about two months. Or we directly contact those museums. And sometimes those museums, I mean, it will it will suit those collections better. So you're rehoming them, yeah. you're providing that sort of new and fresh interpretation. We offer to sort of non-accredited museums, and that can be anything from maybe a tourist attraction, potentially, mm. or maybe a local parish church. Or um, I'm thinking uh, local societies, that sort of thing, or... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously, there's loads of non-accredited museums and visitor attractions. How we've done it is we've um, created an advert for the museum development officers to include in their newsletter. So it's a nice way of sort oh. of covering a wide area. In our, yeah. in our case, the east, east of England, we don't have any sort of interest from accredited or non-accredited institutions. At that point, we sort of offer to community group, which has been mm. really fantastic. We've worked with Epping Forest District Council's community gardening project. And some objects have sort of gone on to have a lovely lease on life and sort of local allotment. So we have a 19th century sink that is now a sump for tomatoes. Amazing. (laughs) And we have a couple lovely Victorian fireplace surrounds, which didn't have any relevant to the district, but they sort of now have sort of a nice new life as sort of a garden feature. Mm. which is really lovely to see. That's basically how far we've gotten with the objects we've um, rehomed now. If a community group didn't want those objects, we'd consider disposal or destruction. So that would be actually destroying the object if it is hazardous or disposing it, which can be giving back to their original owner, gifting it to charity or selling the object via auction or maybe like a new site like the Museum Depot site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think those are really lovely stories. I really like the examples of that. That's such creative reuse. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Have you found that people have questioned what you're doing or have people been upset in any way or has it been a generally just good experience all around? I know you're not done, but you know, it's, I feel like these sorts of things happen in the beginning when people are like, wait, what? If this can reassure anyone that's listening, that's planning on um, doing a similar mm. sort of project, we actually have anticipated more controversy than we have experienced by far. We've prepared ourselves by having the discussions nice and early about why might someone see an issue with this process or if they, why might someone misunderstand it or need further dialogue. We really investigated 
all the different queries that might that might crop up and we've been pretty smooth sailing as far as i can mm-hmm. i'm not always there with the volunteers i don't know if they've had any experiences that i'm not privy to but um i definitely as from the sort of broader comms point of view from the council it's definitely uh, not been not been rough <laughs> no i mean i think the volunteers all understand why we're doing this project and as you as you say we're sort of in the early stages of publicizing this project yeah but what, what we have done so far is just kind of small posts on museum social media as well as talks with museum assets but anything that sort of is meant for the public has sort of used we carefully chose our terminology so we've tried to stay away from sort of museum jargon and maybe alarming words like disposal or rationalization or removal yeah and we've tried to steer more towards words like hidden uncovered and audit which are a bit more understandable and almost they almost give it sort of an archaeological perspective you know we're uncovering new things and it's quite exciting yeah and we've also you know in our press release we've talked about the importance to the public about you know showing these objects in an exhibition and increasing the amount of behind the scene tours. So there's a lot of kind of public benefit that I think really refining our collection will will do. And we've also tried to, you know, especially with our Twitter feed, is we've really tried to celebrate the volunteers, the objects, the original donors for the objects. So we've tried to give everything kind of a human face, I suppose. Which I think is so important. You know, these objects reflect people's stories. So I feel like it, it's it's it, I guess that's the thing where people sometimes get upset is probably less institutional in mm. a lot of ways. I feel like a lot of the times when I have this this sort of conversation with, say, non-museum people, their reaction is, but what about the person who gave that to you? Like, do you not think that they would have been upset? Talking about the donors and sort of honouring them, making this a more human journey through via objects, basically, I, I think is definitely a really nice way of doing this i think that's that's quite genius i like it (laughs) in really rare circumstances are we going to destroy an object or sell an object in in most circumstances they will be given as a gift or transferred to an accredited institution or a non-accredited institution we have sort of destroyed um, a hazardous asbestos ironing board because it was Mm. quite friable was was sort of falling apart in front of our eyes and it's just not safe for people to work around. So in, in those really rare circumstances, we will need to sort of destroy an object. But Again, and I think this is something that we tried to address a little bit in like our Danger Danger episode, which was quite quite a while ago now. But what's that? Sometimes things are just not safe to work with or around. And those are circumstances when, you know, you sort of got to make a call. And whether that is, well, we'll just put in a bubble forever and watch <laughs> it disintegrate from outside. Is that really better than just removing the hazard? You know, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? Um, what we've tried to do as well is some um, some of our documentation isn't isn't wonderful, and I think it's important to be transparent about it. And some of our documentation's in a digital format, in a paper format, which obviously is sometimes a problem with potential hazards because the hazard might mm, not be recorded. So known, we, yeah. we had one object which was sort of a brown bar, and it said radium on it, mm. which obviously our initial thought is. Okay, that's really problematic. And we consulted with different museums to sort of assist in identifying it. And we spoke to the Science Museum who put us in touch with a radioactive object expert. And luckily, it was just boot polish. 
which is fantastic. Amazing. But in those circumstances, you know, we need to go out and get that sort of extra input to help us understand these objects. Well, yeah, exactly. How far along are you guys now with this project? And where, where do you sort of see it not ending? Because I suppose it's a very much ongoing thing, but I expect the project will probably have some sort of end point, I guess. Yeah, so... So the project itself is managed by my fantastic colleague, Esther Green. Um, so mm-hmm. the project is going to last about two and a half years. But as you can imagine, it's sort of fracturing into kind of sub-projects, for la- which will yeah. last 10 plus years, potentially. Yeah. Um, so all of the museum objects are stored in four different storage locations. So we're basically doing each one at a different period of time. So... It's a lot of work and, you know, we need a lot of volunteers and staff and they're available to sort of assist because it's over a hundred thousand objects to to get through because we're looking for all of them. (laughs) It's a lot. It certainly is. And we're a small museum. (laughs) Definitely. No, that's the thing. I think when people are like, how how do you not do this already? It's like, I don't think you understand the scope of (laughs) what might be the problem here. Mm. (laughs) Because, you know, collections vary wildly in size and how they're stored and how accessible they are. Yeah, so it's... It's no small feat, um, but it's definitely one of those worthwhile projects. And it's so nice to be able to highlight you guys as, you know, one of the places that's doing this because uh, it's it's just one of those things that we need to uh, normalize and celebrate when they're done well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we haven't been doing it for a huge amount of time, but we've already had a sort of a lot of really positive outcomes. You know, we, we started this project in the middle of lockdown um, yeah. And a lot of our volunteers are older individuals that maybe live alone, so maybe kind of struggling with isolation and loneliness in lockdown. And we provided regular kind of remote workshops for the volunteers, as well as newsletters and email updates. So I think it allowed the volunteers to continuously engage with the project and hopefully increase their own kind of confidence dealing with IT and sort of email platforms yeah. and Excel I mean, that's a fantastic thing to, you know, assist people with. I think that's fantastic. We've had a couple of volunteers, actually, that speak English as a second language. And they have said that using the condition assessment glossary that we provided has been sort of a good way of improving their own language skills. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it's beautiful. Isn't it? I mean, it's really fantastic that, that that's kind of an outcome, you know, and, and some individuals have gone on to use it for job applications. Yeah, that's fabulous. It helps me get back to what our museum is all about, really, because as someone who works across quite a few different teams in the council, sometimes I get put on the sort of major temporary exhibitions and I'm helping promote those. And I forget some of our, our own collection that isn't visiting. I'm so excited to be involved in those sort of bigger scale projects, but it's so nice to dip back into the rationalisation and help me really understand our collection that we, we house all the time. Yeah, no, exactly right. And I, I think that's a super valuable thing because I know that, you know, blockbusters, they can be the thing that lures a new audience into the museum. But sometimes, you know, you've got real gems in the collection that you might just not know about. And that actually, you know, really inspires people. So it's uh, it's a beautiful thing to be looking at. Do you want to know about the boring, like, groundwork that we're doing? <laughs> I would love to hear about the boring groundwork. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> So I think it depends on the institution what 
what sort of software you use to determine what you sort of retain or dispose of. You know, it might in some circumstances, a museum might just want to use the database to sort of collate all that information. In our circumstances, we found that a lot of information gathered at the object entry stage. So we might have had a huge amount of information written on the entry form. But that wasn't necessarily transferred to the, the cataloging phase, for example. So we're using a really large spreadsheet. And I feel like a lot of projects end up just being a really boring spreadsheet. <laughs> it's not boring, especially if you color code it. <laughs> it is color coded. Yeah. So it's, there we go. It's, it's basically a way that we're condensing all that kind of disparate information into one, yeah. into one place. And we split the project into three separate phases. So we call it a significance matrix spreadsheet. And we have three separate phases. The first phase is mainly about recording the basic object information. So recording things like where this object was found. So its location, the accession number, the object name, a brief description of the object, photographing the object, and then condition checking the object. So highlighting if it's poor, fair, or good, highlighting any potential hazards in it as well. So the phase one is very much interacting with the particular object. The phase two is slightly more challenging. So that's sort of the research side of the project. So that involves sort of researching the objects and condensing all that sort of disparate information from, you know, accession registers and object entry forms, MDA cards, computer databases, random spreadsheet. That post-it note on the wall. That post-it on the wall, everything. Yeah, so we're trying to condense all that information into the spreadsheet. And we've sort of split it into five separate sections to try to help us understand sort of the significance of it. Mm-hmm. So we've, yeah. we've used um, UCL guidance as well as the Collection Trust Rationalization, Rationalization Significance 3.0 document, I believe, to sort of steer us in the right direction. But we record... Things like the provenance of the object, the rarity and uniqueness of the object, the historical importance, the public engagement potential, and the societal importance as well. So a lot of different things sort of to hope is point us in the right direction to see how significant an object is. Is the public engagement side sort of how often it's been seen that's, or? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So how often it's been on temporary or permanent display, how often it's mm. been used for sort of research purposes, as well as sort of the potential of, for it to be used in future projects. You know, other museums might be um, interested in how this type of project is funded, because I imagine that Ooh, yeah. time and money are prohibitive. Um, so in 2020, um, we submitted a funding bid for the project to the Esme Fairbank uh, Collections Fund, but we were ultimately unsuccessful. So despite that sort of setback, the museum team and Epping Forest District Council really understand the importance of this project. So they've agreed to support and fund the project through sort of internal resources, which we're obviously really fortunate to have. Yeah, amazing. Um, and it's now sort of a key initiative for the council to complete this project. And we have that sort of council backing. We have the, the backing of the portfolio holder as well, which which is fantastic because I think that's so key for a project like this because it yeah, that's really good. so much work and can last for such a long period of time. I think they understand the nuances behind it. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's really, really positive. And, you know, <laughs> people in charge who are listening, this is how to do it, guys. <laughs> 
we have spoken to other museums that are, for example, getting the community involved in determining the significance matrix spreadsheet. So they're not actively yeah. determining what they're retaining and disposing of. They're actually putting together how do we determine the significance of objects. Yeah, what's important. And that, yeah. that kind of um, project was funded. And that's a great way of sort of getting the community yeah. involved in that decision making. But obviously that kind of project is going to take an even greater amount of time because they're of just course. putting together yeah. sort of that decision making process together. I think you guys have done a really great job of just sort of highlighting how this is a really good positive project and how it's going for you. Hopefully it's been reassuring. Yes, I hope so. Mm. That, yes, it's going to be a lot of work, but these are worthwhile projects to undertake and they don't have to be nearly as scary as you think they are. So thank you both so much for sharing. It's been really good. Well, I really liked hearing from them because it, it was, it's part of a, obviously it's part of a huge project. The thing that struck me was the size of the project, but also I got really excited about the idea of collating information about an object. Swoon. <laughs> oh, you nerd. <laughs> from all the different places, <laughs> you know? So the, the, all the, you know, as you say, the, the, the bits of information, the post-it notes and, and everything. I just, I really yeah. like the idea of, I just, I'd love to do that. I absolutely agree with you that it was sort of nice to uh, just imagine being able to spend that amount of time sort of just getting to know your objects. I really enjoy that angle. Yeah. I think it's really nice. Yeah, really, really nice. I suppose another thing that I enjoyed was sort of the the pitch for the benefit for the future of the collection. Like that, yeah. If we do this now, we can keep collecting, and and I think that's an important angle to these things. Is like a lot of museums are sort of over capacity, and yes, it would be lovely if we could just have more capacity. But also, are we using what we've got already particularly well? Probably not. If you have uh, again ten mangles. <laughs> um, <laughs> I quite like the sustainability point of view of like, well, if we do this now, we can we can be better for our, sort of for our mm. future selves. Like we can we can be better for the future museum, and like this is hard work, but other people have put it off forever, and we're sort of left to deal with that mess. And we should be the people who deal with the mess. But the opportunity as well for the research is just so uh, lovely, yes. and it put me in mind of um, the way that we do things in my museum so i spoke to my um collections manager about this just so i knew i was you know saying the right thing you know we don't have the time or the money or the you know funding to do a full rationalization research collections audit it's something we want to do obviously yeah so the way that we're tackling disposal um, and rationalization is doing it by based on projects project based so for example we've got a poster project at the moment that we defined the project as a priority because of the you know poor storage poor knowledge poor you know condition and everything and obviously the vast quantity that we've got we could be doing so much more with these there's so you know the the important objects but we just don't know what we've got um yeah so we, we got some funding for it basically small scale project and we're doing the, all the documentation all of the research all of the storage and everything but also building in potential disposal assessment for disposal and duplicates assessment all of that sort of thing yeah it's such a positive thing it's not core work but it 
should be sort of thing. We should be doing more of this. We should be, you know, let's get actually a proper idea of what we've got. Let's get it accessible. Let's get it actually, you know, on a list for display of in some form somewhere. Digitization, you know, so get it online. Yeah, exactly. Digitization. Get it online. Get the information out there. No one can even loan an object if they don't know you've got it. Well, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that that was the thing that that, that struck me, and that's how we do um, rationalization. I really want to do more of it, though. We've got so much. Ah, but uh, I like that you have an appetite for it. I enjoy that. <laughs> that's great. That's really good. But it can be bite-sized. It doesn't have to be let's do the whole collection because honestly that is a big undertaking right even if you decide because you don't have necessarily the like funding to do like a big project or like a big song and dance if you've got like the collections policies in place and stuff and you decide to start on maybe maybe even the smallest collection you have like say that um i don't know you've got one drawer full of coins okay we'll look at the coin collection i don't know just start somewhere and have a think about it and then write those thoughts down in terms of here's here's some data maybe we don't need these things or here's a here's a case for maybe i don't know cutting that by a third or something because we have loads of duplicates and they're mm-hmm. not even from the area or whatever <laughs> whatever the criteria is right um that would pertain to coins that was a terrible choice sorry guys <laughs> but God, I just picked bad examples today. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I have an example that's similar. Badges, for example. Okay. We've got loads of badges. And the fact that we don't know what we've... We have know some of the things that we've got, but we don't know a lot of the badge collection. So that just means that we get, you know, offered collections of badges and we don't know whether we've got some of them or not. And we, you know, oh, people God, will yeah. come and say, we, we're putting on an exhibition about this. Do you have... What objects do you have associated with it? And we sort of don't know because we know there's probably some badges related to the subject and that will, you know, we just don't know in terms of the objects that take up collection, uh, collection space. It's not significant, but that's probably why nobody's, you know, prioritized looking at it in the past. Yeah, definitely. So you can start small and that might be a good way of, a good way of getting to know maybe the paperwork that goes with it, the procedures that you might want to um, have in place for doing it on a larger scale or with a different collection, a way of sort of finding some teething problems with that. Maybe it's something you can, I don't know, involve volunteers with, not to do the thing for you, but to help you with it, much like it sounded like they did. At, uh, at Epping because I feel like I liked that there was so much community involvement both in them f- finding new homes for things and for volunteers sort of being involved with the actual work. You know, that's community buy-in and that that's really nice. I, I know that we really find it difficult to let go <laughs> and not control absolutely everything, but guys sometimes. <laughs> but it was also nice that the objects, once they were removed from the collection, had a second life or a third life. Yes, exactly. Wasn't that beautiful? You know, it, it, we want to protect everything. We want to look after and store everything. But realistically, if we're not doing anything with it and it, it's so, it falls so far out of our collecting policy these days, yeah. then give it to somebody else who'll love it. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And I guess that's the thing. Like, I'm such a big fan of objects being used, if that's for display or handling or whatever it is that it this just falls in my wheelhouse right i i love <laughs> things being used and i know that loads of you will probably have like recalled in horror to like hear that some things were put in like allotment god gardens <laughs> and stuff but it's like but people are enjoying them what is the point i mean not to go full marie Kondo here but 
Does that spark joy? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's probably not the way to look at your collection. Does it spark joy? But, you know, it probably needs to spark something. <laughs> Research interest would be great. Yes, and not a fire. <laughs> So I want to ask our thoughts on institutional memory, because I think that we Ooh. started with a little eye-opener of what it can mean to have the loss <laughs> of institutional memory. You end up storing yes. an entire bathroom suite in packaging for yeah. 30 years yeah. or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but so much of our kind of knowledge and understanding of the collection, of collections, I should say, um, relies on someone knowing about it and you yeah. know there are things that in my museum that we're so lucky that the people that know yeah. things are still around because we can just ask them but then you know in conversation you'll have conversations with the you know the old director and he'll say oh that's that that object that's really interesting because that was bought in by this person who also later bought in this and was friends with this guy and this is an object that this guy had but was never given to us and like what do you mean there's an association with this? Oh, look, somebody else has got a photograph of these two things in the same place. Like, Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it is beautiful. It's also stressful. <laughs> it also makes me genuinely feel a bit queasy because it, it all <laughs> lives in like two people's heads. Exactly. And, and then ultimately... I don't know. One of them gets hit by a bus and the other one retires. Okay, great. What What now? Then It's not written down. It's not on the database. It, it's not in any way conveyed to the next generation of whoever is at that museum. And ultimately, maybe that department goes away. I mean, I've seen it time and time again, where, for example, someone used to have like a natural history department and then now they don't like at all. And then all of that information is just lost because it was never written down. It genuinely terrifies me. And it's the... It's going to be one of those things that's behind quite a lot of the problems that we're probably dealing with now is that we don't know because no one wrote it down because, again, it was institutional memory. You can't really run an organization on institutional memory. It's a beautiful thing, but it needs to be recorded. It just needs to be recorded. I don't know. It makes me a, a, a lump is forming in my stomach. <laughs> uh, if those people are the very experience of the collection are generous and that is amazing and you can try and you know download their brains and things as much as you can through conversation then putting the notes on databases and stuff like that but sometimes they are the gatekeepers and they don't want to share yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, then you're, and then you're stymied sometimes people quite wrongly think oh it's the reason i'm still here is because they can't possibly fire me because i have all this information <laughs> and it's like okay that's not a good hold to have over anyone and i can't believe you think that's a good tactic but you definitely do come across those people and that's really problematic <laughs> but then in some ways you may as well treat that as that information doesn't exist then because if you don't share the information and you're not willing to give it to other people the information doesn't exist Grump, grump, grump. <laughs> how about then the decisions that we make in acquisitions at the point of acquisitions because we've had a number of um you know so many conversations in acquisitions meetings we're, we're really lucky that conservation gets to be involved but we've had conversations that have basically gone well can we look after this or do we have too much of something that is similar to be able to look after this properly yeah and so it really is you know, from that point of view, absolutely the existing collection that's standing in the way of the potential future collection. And if that existing collection isn't as, you know, rational <laughs> as it could be, then that's, you know, 
a bad state of affairs. I mean, here, a couple of different things come to mind. First of all, I'm annoyed by the fact that maybe we have to make decisions today because the current collection was sort of standing in the way. And if we solve that two years down the line, will you just end up feeling like, oh, we should have gotten that thing that we were offered three years ago because now now it would fit or now it would be fine. But then you can't keep thinking like that because that would just drive you insane. And that's true of everything in life. You can't second guess yourself. But... I do think that it, that we need to make these decisions for our future self's sake. <laughs> I'm also really curious to hear if you guys record those sorts of conversations that you might have. Yeah, we have acquisitions meeting uh, minutes, excuse me, um, and yeah. we so we say why it is that we didn't accept something or why we did accept something. And we also have, for example, a, a limit of um, only five banners a year can come in. <laughs> um, so. Oh, okay. Because we're just so oversubscribed, it's more that we've got we've, we've run out of space. <laughs> Basically, yes. um, we can't keep collecting to the degree that we have been collecting in the past because there just isn't the space. And that is the problem of many, many places. Basically, like it's unsustainable mm, to keep yeah. collecting at the pace that we have been, and to make it more sustainable we'll need to get rid of something mm. or do something differently and the solution can't be buy a bigger house which is sort of <laughs> how it's sort of how it's going and like you know because it's like oh where do i put all my stuff i guess i need a bigger house and that's sort of how museums sometimes treat it i'd like a bigger house and in some ways it's like <laughs> i totally see where you're going with that but also i don't know that we can keep all the things that we're currently keeping and not just in terms of oh someone will tell you that you have to put it in a smaller box or like <laughs> not just that but also like really long term okay so we need to store these for what hundreds of years whilst the planet is heating up and uh, energy consumption needs to go down and like how okay so how are we actually going to do that can we really keep that many of everything or d- does this go more extreme like is it like i have heard people before and i do mean like conservatives and collections care people talk about having regional stores where there's mm-hmm. one of each thing yeah and that's that's like the pool of things that you can have as a region as opposed to everyone having a henry hoover from i don't know whenever henry hoover's were invented <laughs> um you know and, like, the 90s. Oh, and everyone have and everyone having the asbestos ironing board and everyone <laughs> having i don't know <laughs> the special little heater that everyone had in their front room for a bit in the 80s I, you know like so that not everyone has to have duplicates of everything which is both a genius solution and makes me extremely anxious <laughs> i was gonna say i i don't feel soulless to me that that just feels like a, a box ticking exercise to make sure we've got the right inventory <laughs> rather mm. than the reasons it behind bit. it, it does you know because <laughs> whenever that comes up i'm like but it, don't we usually say that we need to look after the stories to go yeah. with them? and then does it become does it become a contest for who has the best story about their particular greater? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, doesn't that become stupid then? Is that, or will it only work for things that are sort of set dressing or sort of extreme examples of something that used to exist, like type specimens? Is that what we're doing? So is it, does that only work for type specimens so that everyone has an example of something, but it doesn't have any story with it other than it came from this shop in the 60s like does that is that the extent of the story then as opposed to this was my grandma's uh she did all of her ironing on this thing or like you know like 
do we lose the stories if we just go for type specimens? And then where do the story objects fit into that? I would love to have more conversation about this. Like, please write in if you have opinions, because I would love to hear more about this. Because it is a seriously discussed thing in some circles, and I would love to hear more. Basically, convince me. <laughs> but then also, there are some, certainly of recently, recent years, some really successful museums and galleries don't have any objects at all. You know, it's all, it's literally all stories. It's audio, it's visual, you know, it's in that respect. But they don't hold collections themselves. You know, it's a dynamic way know, of, I know. of dealing with things, which is just a different way of thinking, really. It is a different way of thinking. And I still don't know how I feel about it because I love objects. So, Emma, I'm interested to hear from you about what you feel about the idea of a large collections facility where everything is shared. I'm not sure. I, I To be honest, it makes me go a bit cold. Mm. It feels a bit devoid of any feeling. And I guess, I guess individual institutions know why they collect. They know their mission. They know what they're mm-hmm. about. They're hopefully in touch with their audiences or they're reaching out to get new audiences and I just I just feel like you want that in-house really so you can respond Mm -hmm. quickly I mean imagine if there was a big facility and then you everybody wanted to do a brain exhibition one year (laughs) and then who who decides who gets it is it the big institution gets it or the small you know I just yeah yeah I, I I just don't just just doesn't really I don't like it (laughs) <laughs> no no i i think that's fair and also it sort of doesn't work for everything i think the a specific example that i remember being brought up all the time was pretty much you know um social history mm. sort of stuff like the sort of stuff that everyone feels like they've got some of but again that's not necessarily true and i'd be interested to see sort of what things would, would that even would you know apply to like what is it that everyone thinks they have some of um or that they might need some of in the future for example and also is it enough to keep one what happens if one disintegrates anyway <laughs> it also doesn't really work for things like art like it's not like you can have one impressionist painting and that's it you know like, uh, so it sort of doesn't work for everything which is another reason that i'm sort of intrigued by the type specimen sort of approach where it's like i can sort of see it working for some things but not really everything and also, we sort of forget what sort of data we can get from these things, I think. But that's mostly because my mind immediately went to natural history, because how many stuffed robins do you need? But on the <laughs> other hand, but what if that shows like a progression of how the stuffed, uh, the particular stuffed robins in this case, um, I don't know, how they changed plumage in a particular area because you've got enough specimens to like show a change or something i don't know like if you or your taxidermist got better or worse yeah but honestly that's also interesting isn't it like that's a story um and i feel like that well if you if you don't then keep all those robins then you wouldn't know that so is it really enough to keep a robin i must admit you need to have so many more voices in in this than me essentially mm-hmm. because you know yeah. I'm a conservator you know I can look at the materials and I can give viewpoints and I can let people know the impact of keeping that within the collection and storage capacity and things like this but it depends on how your curators view things and how you can get people to engage with them whether people are researching them you know whether they're out there so people know about them mm-hmm. and I guess if you had all of those things in place then it might be a bit easier to make those decisions 
I think it's quite nice to get rid of, not get rid of, obviously, remove from your stores. Um, <laughs> some of those historical loans, you know, that you were actually supposed to have yeah. looked after for yeah. two years and then nobody really did the updated paperwork and it's been 20 years you and it's a yeah. conversation yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. There are so many of those. And I think that's another thing to be honest about where things have been left in like an entry store forever, or people could bring in things for identification or, or similar to museums. And then they never came back for them. Yeah. Life got in the way. They forgot that they did that yeah. or someone's nan did it. And then they didn't know about it because she didn't leave a note for anyone where that thing had gone. And then they don't even know that it's there. There's a lot of stuff like that. Come in for conservation assessment. Yeah. Yes, and then no one had the definitely. money for the conservation. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was wondering whether it is worth just having a quick uh, chat about kind of non-emotive synonyms about disposal. Let's do that. I think Let's that's a good that. idea. <laughs> yeah. If people do get a bit upset about saying disposal and that sort of thing. And rationalization sounds very clinical and a bit it weird. Does. And also when I said it to my other half, he was like, you mean like saying, oh, I can't believe I'm keeping this, but I'm keeping it because it's so pretty or like it makes my eyes look extra blue. And I'm like, not, not that kind of rationalization. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I like what you're going with it, but... That's not what I meant. So it, it does bring up some jargon issues maybe around this. So we've been toying with different ways of phrasing this. Uh, does anyone have any good ideas of what we can say? Uh, w- uh, welcome. We use the, we use transfer more often than uh, dis- oh. disposal yeah, or dispersal. Dispersal is also quite hmm. nice because it sort of indicates that it's... Um, I feel a like transfer sort of indicates between museums, which is true often, but it doesn't always have to be, if you see what I mean. It's, I don't know, it sort of feels, I don't know, transfer sort of feels more institutional, you know? Yeah. It really I does. think it feels maybe more active, like it's definitely going somewhere. It's got an end point. Yeah, yeah I maybe, like it. Yeah. yeah. Good pitch. I like it. <laughs> Quite liked in the interview um, that they were saying about uncovered and hidden and yeah, and, that, know, I, really, like that. I thought yeah. that was really clever. Yeah, The language around these things really matters. And it's not only because it sort of makes it less traumatic for us as museum professionals, but also because it, I was going to say because it doesn't upset people as much, but that's not really the point. Uh, I just mean that it conveys better what it is. Um, as for disposal, will literally always sound like you're putting in the bin. Again, not really what we're about. It, it's also interesting for me to think about sort of um, if if one type of reuse or second home is better than another because again it's sort of this hierarchy in the current guidance is sort of like oh you give it to an accredited museum or you um give it to a non-accredited museum after that and it sort of sort of denotes there's like certain levels of goodness but actually i think any use any second life is a good one um but then that's that's sort of me being extremely hardcore sustainability circular economy type person where it's like I just wanted to have another life. I just wanted to not go to landfill. I just wanted to not, I don't know, I just wanted to have another life. Um, and I think that might just me being sort of extreme sustainability nerd, but I think I'm just all about it finding another home. I'd agree. And, you know, not all institutions can be accredited. You know, it's it's quite a lot of hard work to get accreditation for those people who have done it. So, you know, they shouldn't be discounted. What I take away from us talking about this is that we would all like to hear more of the positive outcomes. Like we would quite like to hear those stories and we'd quite like 
them highlighted. And I think that's something that I, I would say I took away from, from our lovely interview as well was that they would like more sharing and they would like more positive stories, like being sort of seen and celebrated because I, I agree that we don't really hear enough of those success stories or the, the nice sort of happy endings where, you know, something has found a different home. Um, and I think we can, we can all do with more of those, mm-hmm. to be honest. I think just general more transparency on the process as well, because when it doesn't work out, yeah. you know, if we're not you know, sharing that more widely for various different reasons, maybe embarrassment, you know, it's always good to know what goes, what doesn't go quite right and what you had to do. You know, to- yeah, no, exactly. When other people have shared stories with me, it's often been things like, oh, we put it on Find an Object, which is on the Museums Association website, um, and then nobody wanted it. And then, I don't know, we just put it in a bag and maybe went to charity. And I think everyone felt like it was really anticlimactic, mm-hmm. like they really wanted people to really want the things they put up. But I also don't know how many people look at the find an object yeah. type place. And also, be- and also because it's so institutionally restricted, it's sort of a limited pool of people who might want that item that can actually look and sort of ask for it, if that makes sense. I sort of feel like if we had more things like not free cycle, right? But like if there was better, more transparent way of offering these things. There was a more open platform potentially. Yeah, exactly. That would be really interesting. I'm actually just looking at the uh, just looking at the website right now. There's 39 entries. Oh, that's not very many. No, it's not, is it? The very from paintings, VHS tapes some cameras, a medium gun from the Artillery Museum. Nice. <laughs> Considering how many museums and galleries we are, have, it doesn't feel many items. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, definitely not. I sort of feel like we could do more with how we're offering these things and like finding ways of doing that better. But again, like, I guess it's like who would fund their platform, who would develop it, etc., and who would run it and monitor it and all those things, right? But I just feel like we can do more, especially if we want to be part of, you know, a sustainable future. I feel like that's where it's at, guys. We need to solve this. But yeah, uh, that's sort of a, just a final thought for me. It's just that I'm actually really positive about looking at our collections and what we've got and giving things second homes. I am super in favor of the process, mostly from the sustainability angle. Like I think people can enjoy these things differently. And if we're not using them and they and we need that space for future collections and i think it is a good thing like on the whole and i know that might be controversial come at me <laughs> um what do you think emma how what are your what are you feeling i think similarly any any time that is spent looking at the collection that you have is not time wasted essentially so it could mm. be that you know it's uh, something is identified as a candidate for dispersal or transfer but actually once you know the team that get together who decide on these things researches it they might actually shine a light on actually it's great it's a great item <laughs> we've done a bit of research into it and we need to keep it because it's important to us you know mm. that's an equally great thing I think it's getting those stories out and it could be getting them from the people who don't talk about them, but hold the information or it could be by research. But I think anything that looks at your collection with a different lens and as long as it's well documented as to why you're looking at it and the criteria and you've involved the right group of people that have got, you know, different viewpoints and different stances. And I think it's all good, really. Lovely. And Chloe, what do you think? I think that I am someone who always is frightened of throwing something of anything away. <laughs> but I think basically 
as Emma said, it's the looking at and it doesn't mean just because you, if you go into a store with an idea that you are going through a rationalization project and you do all the research associated with, you're just as likely to say this is really important, let's keep it as there is no need for this, let's dispose of it or let's transfer it. Mm. And I'm just quite <laughs> tired of not knowing what there is. Mm-hmm. You know, we want stuff to be seen and we want stuff to be learned from and everything. And if you don't know what you've got, then you're so far behind actually being able to put it on display. Like it's not, you know, the condition of some of the objects doesn't really matter because you could, you know, be in bits in a case as long as it had a good interpretation. Uh, <laughs> but if you don't know it's there, it doesn't matter. Might as well not exist. It's a good point. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you'll be listening to Emma Duggan, Chloe Ramsey and me, Jenna Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about Christmas. In the meantime, check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. That is a great amount of whistling. I love it. I'm sorry, it's Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> He's having a, having a bit of a whistle over there. <laughs> Perfectly fine. That's hilarious. I'm going to super quickly shut that door just in case more whistling occurs. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.